Welcome to the Frankly Speaking Podcast, Friends of Europe's weekly broadcast on the topics of European and world affairs. Coming up this week. The European Union is holding a summit of its own uh, with the Western Balkan countries uh, in uh, Albania. So uh, this does suggest that uh, there maybe is a geopolitical moment in the Western Balkans. Uh, the same uh, elites, uh, ethnic nationalist elites are essentially entrenched in most of the in power in most of the Western Balkan countries as were at the end of the time of the Yugoslav Wars. Good afternoon, everybody, uh, and uh, greetings from Brussels, from uh, Paul Taylor and myself, Jamie Shea. Both of us are senior fellows at Friends of Europe, uh, and welcome to this week's uh, Frankly Speaking uh, podcast. Uh, it will be, again, my pleasure to be the moderator, and today I'm going to interview uh, Paul Taylor. The reason is, is that Paul um, is tomorrow going to launch in Brussels uh, at the Friends of Europe Balkans Summit, his latest uh, uh, European security report. Uh, this is number 11. Uh, and having previously covered uh, areas such as space, uh, the Arctic, the Sahel uh, or the Black Sea uh, or the Mediterranean and several uh, European countries uh, in between, uh, this time round, Paul has chosen uh, the Western Balkans. Um, and uh, the title of his 11th report is Seize the Geopolitical Moment, uh, the Western Balkans and uh, European uh, Security. Uh, so, Paul, uh, looking, of course, forward to uh, your launch event to, to tomorrow, but we've also chosen a good day today, the eve of uh, the Friends of Europe event, because, of course, uh, the European Union is holding a summit of its own uh, with the Western Balkan countries uh, in uh, Albania. So uh, this does suggest that uh, there maybe is a geopolitical moment in the Western Balkans. But my first question to you is, uh, having you know covered so many other areas, did you go to uh, the Western Balkans this time round because it was kind of Buggins turn, uh, you know, a gap in your, uh, your geographical European panorama? Or was there something particularly uh, interesting about the situation that draw your attention to that particular part of Europe? Well, Jamie, thank you. I think there's a bit of both, to be honest. Um, I've, in, in, as I've done these reports, I've, I've tried to pick out and highlight areas where Europe faces security challenges that may not be widely recognised. That was clearly the case in the Black Sea, which was off widely regarded as a backwater and has turned out to be a bloody great theatre of war. Um, also true, I think, of the Arctic, the high north, uh, um, a zone of considerable risk and uh, um, uh, strategic importance. Um, the Sahel, <coughs> as we've seen, hotly contested. Uh, the Mediterranean, where we haven't seen the end of fun and games there. Um, but the Western Balkans somehow had been, you know, in the words of my friend Ivan Krastev, um, a bit of a frozen solution rather than a frozen conflict. Um, there were still plenty of unresolved conflicts there after the end of the Yugoslav Wars. Um, but everybody has sort of assumed that the, the solution was that these um, countries would gradually be absorbed into the Euro-Atlantic institutions, into NATO, uh, into the European Union, and would, if not live happily ever after, then at least uh, the, the, the threats that they pose in terms of potential instability uh, um, uh, would, would cease to exist. 
20 years later, we're still nowhere. And therefore, yeah. um, with the outbreak of the of the you know, Russian invasion uh, of, of Ukraine, all of a sudden, um, the, those areas of unresolved problems that could start to uh, um, be unpicked um, and, and that are still festering without a, uh, without a proper solution uh, become more acute again. And that's why I decided uh, to revisit the Western Balkans. Well, Paul, uh, your answer there leads me very nicely into uh, the first uh, sort of big question that I wanted to put to you today about your report. I mean, you're well known for not uh, pulling your punches and for being uh, balanced and fair, but but also critical where criticism is deserved. And you mentioned these sort of frustrated hopes, uh, these dashed expectations about where uh, the Western Balkans should be these days. I mean, obviously, as you well know, uh, hundreds of thousands of NATO and EU soldiers have done their time there. Uh, innumerable NGOs and other international organizations have tried very hard to help the Western Balkans with institution building in the economy. Why are we not further forward? I mean, is it the fact is it that the West sort of got the strategy wrong or lost interest, uh, didn't push hard enough? Or is it the fact that we've got a sort of a bunch of local leaders in the region who just haven't sort of been up to the game and haven't had the sort of the wisdom to to seize the opportunities. So, if you have to sort of, you know, point your finger at, you know, where the blame lies, where, where, where would, where would you point your finger? I think there's plenty of blame to go around, Jamie, and I don't think you can entirely blame either side. Um, but between them, they, 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 you know, mutually reinforced the inertia. Um, you know, there, there was an old Soviet workers' joke: "We pretend to work, and they pretend to pay us." And yeah, the I EU enlargement. Uh, equivalent of that is we pretend that we're reforming and they pretend they want us. Um, and frankly, it's broken down on both sides. Uh, the same uh, elites, uh, ethnic nationalist elites are essentially entrenched in most of the, in power in most of the Western Balkan countries as were at the end of the time of the Yugoslav wars. They've been, doesn't mean there haven't been elections and some alternations in power. But by and large, most of the countries are still tightly in the grip of those ethnic nationalist parties, some of them led by individual uh, charismatic autocrats. Um, and, um, you know, the, 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 they run clientelistic uh, systems. Um, and from their point of view, why would they um, uh, take the risk of giving up uh, power and money uh, for such a distant prospect of EU enlargement when there's no sign that the EU really wants them anytime soon at any rate? And on the other hand, um, uh, on the EU side, the fact is that after the big bang enlargement of the 2000s, when um, 12 countries joined the EU between, 19, between 2004 and 2007, there was quite a widespread enlargement fatigue. Uh, those countries were quite difficult to integrate and digest, and we've seen backsliding uh, uh, very prominently in, in particular in, uh, on the rule of law, uh, media freedom and so on, uh, in Poland and above all in Hungary, and to some extent in Slovenia and in Bulgaria. Um, and therefore, um, uh, this also um, was, was conflated with fears of uncontrolled migration. And the result of all that was um, that countries in Western Europe, particularly France and the Netherlands, 
where referendums were lost partly because of those factors, um, became very, very uh, reluctant to see any more enlargement. And so without that magnet of enlargement, without the, the, the gravitational pull of enlargement, uh, the region was somewhat left to fester and that's what's happened and to, to be fair the eu's had a, a whole series of other is pressing issues to deal with the uh euro crisis the migration crisis brexit uh the covid19 pandemic and so there's always been other things higher on the agenda than the western balkans and now people in the western balkans worry that with the war in ukraine maybe once again they're being pushed down the food chain i i think that's not quite the case uh, paul yes i mean that, that last point again leads nicely to my next question thank you paul for being so helpful to me in that respect but as i mentioned in my brief introduction uh today there is this eu summit taking place in tirana albania the fact that the eu leaders have traveled to the western balkans rather than summoning the Western Balkan leaders to come to Brussels, I suppose is, uh, is symbolic and important. And this does sort of suggest that uh, in response to the stagnation that you've described, it's time the EU is going to sort of give it another go, right? Uh, has a new strategy, a, a, a new sort of determination. I mean, how do you, do you read this? Do you think that this time around the, uh, the EU uh, is showing sort of more determination, is, is likely to be more successful than some of the sort of the reboots of the Western Balkan strategy that we've seen coming from Brussels in the past? Well, I think the, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine has finally raised awareness of the strategic importance of the Western Balkans again uh, uh, in the EU, uh, that it's a sort of dangerous grey zone there in, inside EU territory uh, with a, a big potential for destabilization in various ways, migration, crime, weapons smuggling, people smuggling, drug smuggling, and so on. Um, and the possibility of violence that could suck in third parties, uh, outside powers. So, um, yes, this year, you know, there have been two of these summits and the first time that one in, in the Western Balkans. Um, there's been a revival of the Berlin process, which is about trying to create a regional economic market and help prepare those countries better for joining the EU. There have been new investments in uh, uh, energy and uh, transport uh, corridors and at long last, the start of um, negotiations for membership with Albania and North Macedonia, which had been long and disgracefully stalled. And then perhaps some practical decisions that, that affect the people's everyday lives, like a decision to gradually uh, introduce the, them into the European Union phone uh, telephone roaming zone so that they pay less telephone charges. And uh, uh, the prospect of granting Kosovo finally the last country that hasn't got it, uh, visa liberalization, which means that Kosovo's, but only from the beginning of 2024, and if this goes through, uh, we'll be able to visit uh, Europe for uh, the EU for 90 days without a visa. Um, but more has to be done because that in itself is, is a good start, but it's not a clear strategy. And what we need is to have more of the benefits of membership accruing to these countries earlier in their accession progress, you know, process. At the moment, we we have a sort of everything or nothing system where they get, you know, a small dribble of pre-accession aid, and then all of a sudden, the day they eventually join, they get up to four percent of uh, GDP bunged at them, 
and often have difficulty absorbing it. So it makes much more sense to give people more tangible benefits earlier on in the process, and that also gives them better incentives to make those difficult reforms. A more-for-more more strategy is what's needed. Okay, but uh, Paul, uh, one of the reasons uh, why people sometimes believe that the EU is sort of re-engaging, and to some degree the US as well, is a fear that you know a vacuum has been left, which Russia and China, sometimes people also mention sort of Turkey or Saudi Arabia, other outside powers, even Iran, uh, you and I have both heard mentioned in the past, the, these sort of adversarial powers are coming in. Uh, so it's a kind of zero sum game, uh, more influence for us means less for them, and vice versa. You've looked at this, do you think that this notion of uh, a challenge in the region for influence from Russia and China is, 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 is overhyped? Or is there enough sort of evidence out there to really make it urgent now for the EU to reassert itself? Well, look, Russia is certainly doing what it can uh, through diplomacy at the United Nations, disinformation, uh, uh, media control, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, and, and using the leverage of its, of its uh, massive energy uh, uh, hold over uh, particularly Serbia and Bosnia, uh, to divide uh, to fan Sla uh, Slavic Orthodox nationalism in the region, uh, to sow uh, a distrust of the EU and NATO, and to exploit societal and ethnic divisions. No doubt about that. Uh, both Russia and China are helping to rearm Serbia. But, 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 uh, perhaps we shouldn't exaggerate it. Russia is clearly distracted by the war in Ukraine. It's got other problems on its plate. And, and some Rus Russian strategists have argued that, you know, Moscow essentially accepted in the early 2000s that the Western Balkans was inevitably on its way towards the West. Uh, and that when Russia pulled its own peacekeepers uh, out of Kosovo uh, in 2004, I think it was a sort of sign that it had basically lowered its ambitions in the region. That, of course, could still change. And Russia could be looked could look to the Balkans as somewhere where it would want to sort of uh, at least try and uh, destabilize and embarrass the EU and the West. So one one has to be on one's guard, and above all, not leave a vacuum. Chinese influence is more economic; it's through the Belt and Road in, uh, Initiative, big projects, infrastructure, um, but also dis diplomatic engagement with the what was the 17, and I believe is now shriveled to the 14 plus one grouping. Um, and, you know, attempts, therefore, to build uh, a dependent clientele in the EU's soft underbelly. Um, do I think that all of that adds up to a great threat? I mean, Turkey is a different case. Turkey was the imperial power in the region for, uh, for, for centuries. So Turkey is part of the Balkans. Um, and Turkey's influence is I think largely benign, but of course, what would happen, for example, if the Russians were to provoke uh, or to encourage the Bosnian Serbs into declaring their independence, and then the uh, Bosniaks, the Muslim Bosniaks were to turn to their Turkish brothers and say, please, can we have some of those Bayraktar drones that are being so <laughs> effective uh, uh, for Ukraine? Uh, you know, you can, you can, you don't have to, I don't have to paint you a picture of what might happen. But, you know, I think the other influence that we haven't talked about, but I think is important, to, is, is one of our own member states and NATO allies, um, Hungary. Hungary. Hungary wields a big influence. It's a neighbor. Uh, 
um, particularly in Serbia, but around the region. It owns some of the media and it is pushing, um, uh, Viktor Orban is pushing his own illiberal form of uh, uh, authoritarian uh, governance down there. And therefore, in a way, you've got two struggles going on, not one. You've got parallel struggles on the one hand between the West and you know, Russia and China over geopolitical influence. But you've also got a struggle between uh, the European liberal democratic model, uh, uh, the Brussels model, uh, if you like, uh, and the Orban-Vucic model, if I can call it that, perhaps Orban-Vucic-Erdogan model of a sort of uh, uh, illiberal, uh, um, you know, authoritarian kind of democracy. Um, and I think the jury's still out on which way that will go in the region. Yes, Paul, you mentioned Alexander Vucic, the president of Serbia, because I also wanted to ask you about Serbia. Uh, in the old Yugoslavia, it was very much you know, the, the dominant entity, particularly when it came to industrial and, and military power. Um, and uh, since the breakup of, of course, of the former Yugoslavia, the question is, is which way is it going to go? Is it going to go to the east, given these uh, strong relations uh, with uh, Russia, to some extent China? Uh, it has a strong foot in the authoritarian camp or as a candidate for EU uh, membership, which has actually started to negotiate the various chapters. Uh, it's looking to the West, and I suppose you know, it's been rather convenient for the Serbs to sort of play this sort of one foot in, one foot out sort of double game. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, if uh, Serbia cannot uh, accept that, for example, the independence of Kosovo and recognition, well, we're not likely to solve that particular uh, issue. Uh, if, as you said, it encourages the Republic of Srpska to try to break away from Bosnia, it, it could still be a factor of instability. So you know, are we going to be frustrated with Serbia for years to come? Or do you think there will come a point where Bukic will realise that you know he has to make a choice of <laughs> Moscow versus Brussels? Brussels, um, and which way do you think it's going to go? And are, do we have any levers of influence over Belgrade in terms of you know, making it sort of live up to the, the European values if it really is serious about being a member of the EU? Well, we have some, we do have some levers, and I think you can see that there's been um, a, a subtle shift in Vucic's positioning. He certainly, he's always tried to play all sides of, uh, off against each other to get the best advantage for himself and for Serbia. Uh, he gets cheap energy from Russia, and he's still very dependent on that. But he now realizes that making himself and his country so dependent on Russia was not a smart idea. And so he's rushing to try and get interconnectors built with uh, 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 Greece, with Bulgaria, um, uh, with Hungary, so as to try and reduce his dependence on uh, uh, Russian energy. Uh, and uh, as he does that, you know, he's, um, he has uh, voted for all the resolutions at the United Nations uh, condemning uh, Russia's uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine and for expelling Russia from the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. On the other hand, he has not aligned himself with the EU sanctions against Russia. He still allows flights from uh, Moscow, direct flights from Moscow to Belgrade. There's a lot of uh, young uh, um, Russians have moved to Serbia, uh, both because uh, both supporters of the war potentially who want to put their money in, in a safe place uh, and opponents of the war who there, there are opposition groups active in, uh, out of Belgrade as well. Um, I think in the long term, Vucic clearly sees that his, his interest is with the European Union. 
But, you know, Serbia has a difficult, has a complex history. Many Serbs, a majority of Serbs, are still deeply resentful of NATO uh, over the bombing of Serbia in 1999 during the Kosovo War. Um, and so, um, you know, there is strong sympathy uh, in a part of the population in Serbia um, for uh, for Russia. And there's also, um, uh, you know, a belief that they'll never get into the EU. And therefore, it's the country in the region where support from EU membership is, is lowest at about 36, 37% currently. That said, I think that, you know, as Vuc Vucic is a realist, he sees Russia's power um, uh, being weakened um, in this war. And, you know, I think that he can see the writing on the wall. But in order for him to make bigger moves uh, towards aligning with the EU and bigger moves in terms of making the reforms and rule of law and pluralism that he will need to make uh, to advance. And you mentioned Kosovo uh, also advancing in the normalization of relations with Pristina. Um, uh, he will have to see bigger, more tangible rewards uh, uh, in the foreseeable future for himself and for Serbia. Uh, Paul, uh, we, ha we had a hot autumn, uh, unfortunately, in the Western Balkans. Uh, I, I've been uh, covering uh, quite closely, as you have, this uh, all near, all, almost a conflict uh, between Kosovo and Serbia over the issue of license plates um, for the uh, ethnic Serb community living in the north of Kosovo. There were reports at one stage that Belgrade had mobilised forces heading towards Kosovo. Belgrade accused the Kosovars of uh, launching drones uh, into Serbia. It, it was, you know, all a bit murky, to be frank, but it did sort of, you know, cause uh, a lot of panic. Pandemonium uh, in Washington, in Brussels, uh, people worked the phones uh, with uh, Albin Kurti, the Kosovo leader, uh, as well as uh, Alexander Kic, you know, calling for de-escalation. And they seemed for the time being to have come to some kind of an agreement on license plates. But it did sort of suggest that, you know, we can't be complacent, that war could break out again. Uh, you mentioned also the situation with Republic of Serbska. So is this a real, you know, are we dealing with sort of pantomime uh, bellicism, if you like? Uh, or do you think that, you know, some of these unresolved issues could really reignite if not quite to the same extent as we saw in the 1990s but could nonetheless really rekindle a, a conflict well even pantomime bellicism can get out of hand out of control uh, i mean a return to the 1990s scale uh, yugoslav wars i think is very unlikely you have a war weary population you have a collective memory of suffering uh, you have few young trained fighters um, and, of course, you have the residual EU and NATO peacekeeping presence in the region. Plus, many of the countries of the region have become members of NATO, although not, of course, Serbia or Bosnia. Um, however, um, political violence, as we've seen, is very possible uh, and indeed has occurred a couple of times this year, uh, notably over the license plates uh, in north, uh, northern Kosovo. And... Um, the problem with that kind of sort of political violence is you can put a clamp a lid on it, but there's always the risk that um, it gets out of hand or that um, a single incident, a hand grenade in a mosque, a, a house burned down, a, um, um, can, can, can take on a life of its own. And all of a sudden, um, people are taking up arms and 
you're into some kind of a, a of a shooting conflict. Now, um, I think the, the 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 most likely cause of a flare-up is still the the very raw relations between the the Kosovo Serbs um, and uh, the Kosovo uh, government. Um, and I have to say that. Um, uh, Mr. Kurti, while he's done a lot in terms of um, domestic, economic, and just judicial reform in a short time, uh, has been um, particularly um, uh, intransigent, I would say, um, you know, um, inflexible uh, in the diplomatic process. And I think that you know, U.S. and um, uh, EU diplomats are tearing their hair, hair out uh, at um, Kosovo's kind of. Um, the difficulty in getting Kosovo to accept um, what they see as common sense uh, arrangements. Um, and <coughs> however, the, the thing that could really, I think, be the most dangerous would be if the, the Bosnian Serbs were to actually make good on these threats uh, to declare independence, to break away from uh, the, uh, the, um, the, the state of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, I don't think that's very likely. Um, they've already postponed it, I think, twice now, um, uh, uh, blaming it on the sort of situation, the international situation and so on, which may be that, you know, because their Russian patron is distracted. But then I think that that's something that would almost inevitably lead to some kind of um, conflict if, 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 if they were, you know, and there's a very long demarcation line there between uh, Republika Srpska and the uh, uh, Bosnian, uh, the, fed, uh, the Federation of the Bosnian Croats and the Bosniak Muslims. Um, and, you know, problems could occur anywhere on that front line. <coughs> the small EU peacekeeping force concentrated in the Sarajevo Valley uh, with no real way of getting to the, getting to the 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 the, the possible theatre of conflict on time. Yeah, uh, well, Paul, that's that's um, balanced, but but it's sobering nonetheless. It suggests that you know those NATO forces in Kosovo and the EU uh, residual EU forces in Bosnia are not going to be sort of coming home anytime uh, soon. Um, uh, you know, as we come to uh, the closing couple of minutes of uh, our podcast this afternoon, uh, two, two things really to ask you just before we wrap up. I mean, uh, you're traveling in the region. Where, where is the hope for the future? Where are those green shoots that we can build on? And friends of Europe, uh, we like very much, as you know, and this will be also on the agenda tomorrow, to look at sort of citizens' engagement, grassroots, you know, civil society, yep. uh, the pressure from below of people who, you know, don't want to play petty politics, who want their leaders to get on with it. Uh, we look at, you know, the private sector, small and medium-sized enterprises, the innovation culture, which is there. It, it's um, uh, uh, compared with Europe, it has a sort of young population, doesn't it, the region, particularly Kosovo. So did you sort of see anything where you thought, well, you know, this is a success story, this is the kind of thing we need to build on i think there's there there, there are plenty of, of of hopeful signs as you say at the grassroots level um uh, you you see it also in 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 the fact that people do that power does change hands in elections and places like um montenegro in north macedonia um that countries are <coughs> prepared to go to great lengths to, to achieve the european goals such as for example the north macedonians changing the name of their country. I mean, can you imagine if France 
um, or Germany had had to change the name of the country just to start negotiations to join the EU and then discovered after having changed their name that, well, actually, they can't yet uh, start the negotiations because there's another uh, set of conditions to be met. So, um, no, I mean, there, there, there's those kinds of hopes. There's, there's a big clean out going on uh, of the judiciary in, in Albania uh, to produce a new, uh, more honest and better trained judiciary, which should in, ter in, in turn help in the fight against corruption and organized crime. There are, um, you know, there are green shoots. And I think the three countries where I see particularly encouraging developments are Albania, um, uh, North Macedonia, and Montenegro, although each has, that has its internal problems. Um, but the thing is, the EU must do more to reward that progress because, you know, you sometimes get the feeling that the, the EU engages is engaging a lot with Serbia because Serbia is the biggest. It's a third of the uh, population of uh, just under 18 million in the, in, in the Western Balkans. And, uh, and it's, it's the country with the, perhaps the best organized state, the biggest administrative ca capacity. But it's certainly not the most advanced in terms of meeting the EU's conditions. And so I think there are, there are, there are, there's encouragement there, there's encouragement where young people want to stay and, and build tech centers in the region and it should get more EU support for that. Um, uh, for where, where, where women are, are creating um, business, um, you know, startup businesses and so on. All, all those sorts of things are creating the social fabric. But, um, you know, and, and the, we, the, the EU has traditionally worked with a mixture of top-down uh, uh, pressure for reform and bottom-up engagement with civil society. We've got to do better and more at the bottom-up. Uh, engagement with civil society. Okay, well, Paul, the, the last question, and because we're out of time, I'm going to have to ask you to sort of just answer this in headline fashion, if you don't mind. Uh, and of course, uh, people who uh, will be hungry for more uh, can, of course, uh, read uh, your uh, report uh, when it is out and, and therefore published also uh, on uh, the website uh, of Friends of Europe uh, in due course uh, and available uh, uh, from tomorrow onwards. But uh, uh, as always, when you do these studies, you come up with a series of recommendations. Uh, many of them uh, can't go through them all tonight. But imagine you had the opportunity to sort of put on the table of the EU summiteers in Tirana uh, this evening, the, the three top recommendations, you know, the, the priority of priorities to really unlock some of this stagnation. What would be your sort of top uh, three. I think the, the the absolute top priority is making more of the benefits of EU membership available earlier on in re in reward for progress for candidates and making it a gradual step by step integration with more political integration with more of their ministers attending our meetings and with observers and coming to the European Parliament and so on getting them more engaged with us earlier in the game uh, and giving them a bigger incentive. Uh, to make the reforms. That's the number one. Number two, um, you know, is, is uh, uh, to make sure that we've got our, our peacekeepers talking to each other, NATO and the EU, exercising with each other, able to reinforce each other, um, involved and keep, you know, with the diplomacy uh, in, in both on both sides, so that if anything were to go wrong, uh, making sure that we're well prepared there. And number three, 
to the peoples of the region is, you know, we can't do it all for you. Um, the EU has, has um, to a degree, ne neglected you. It's left a lot of problems to fester. But those festering problems are your problems. And you've got to want and, uh, 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 and make the efforts for change. And, um, you know, the, the, the question is there of whether there's some sort of, um, you know, Balkan, Central European form of governance that is somehow uh, unadaptable to the EU. I don't believe that, um, but there are a lot of people that will try and convince you of that. And if that were the case, well, then, you know, uh, things are going to be much, the future is going to be much less bright for your region. Well, Paul, thanks very much uh, for taking us through uh, your new study. Um, Bismarck is reputed to have said once that the Balkans were not worth the bones of a healthy Pomeranian grenadier. I think you've convinced us that uh, this is uh, not true. Uh, Bismarck could get it wrong uh, occasionally. Uh, this is a region of strategic importance uh, for Europe. Uh, Europe needs to re-engage, but as you said at the end, uh, local leaders also have their responsibility, but uh, uh, certainly uh, there is a way forward. Uh, Paul, well, one of the things you always do in your studies, is you not only describe the maze very well, but you lead us into it and you lead us uh, back out. And uh, so thanks again on behalf of Friends of Europe for another a great study. Um, anxious to know what the next is going to be, but that will be the subject of another podcast in six months' time. But for now, uh, thanks again to uh, Paul Taylor, Senior Fellow at Friends of Europe. Paul, I should have said at the beginning, of course, he's also a distinguished uh, former diplomatic correspondent with Reuters and a columnist for Politico, amongst many uh, other uh, activities. Paul, wishing you a successful launch uh, uh, tomorrow uh, and many many, many readers uh, for your study. Um, so that's it uh, from this week's Frankly Speaking podcast uh, on behalf of Paul and I, and with thanks as always to Sean Flynn uh, and the communications team at Friends of Europe. Uh, hope you enjoyed this one and there'll be another one coming your way very soon. Bye for now. That's it for this Frankly Speaking podcast. Consider subscribing to our newsletter or following us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And don't forget to tune in again this time next week.